Hey, good morning, everybody. If we haven't met, uh, my name is John, and I'm one of the pastors here. And um, I'm going I'm to open in prayer. And part of the reason that I'm going to open in prayer is because what I am going to say to you this morning is not enough. It's not sufficient. And I, I want you to know that. I want, I want you to know it ahead of time. And I, I want you to know that, um, that the, the Bible, um, we need the Holy Spirit when, when we read the Bible, when we preach the Bible, when we talk about the Bible. So um, I'm going to ask that more than hearing my voice, that you hear the voice of the Holy Spirit speaking in your heart this morning. Okay? Good deal. Will you guys pray for that with me? Okay. Uh, Jesus, thank you so much for being here. Um, I love it that we don't have to search for you, that you're here with us all the time, and that you desire to do um, an amazing, great thing in us. And I, I just pray that we would cooperate with that today. I pray that we would um, look for you and, and hear your voice and dial in, Jesus, to you and expect you to speak. So I pray for me. Um, I pray that you help me be clear and um, pray for my friends here that they would uh, receive your word this morning. In your name, Jesus, amen. On, uh, on January 6th, uh, something really big happened, and I bet you remember it. Uh, there was this thing called uh, a Save America rally that happened in Washington, D.C. And, and that day, tens of thousands of people, uh, anywhere from 10 to 30,000 people, they marched uh, about a mile and a half from the Ellipse, which is near the White House, uh, to the Capitol building. And they marched to the Capitol building to protest the counting of the electoral college votes. You guys all remember that, right? Okay. <laughs> that rally, it started at 11 a.m. that morning, and at noon, Donald Trump uh, sent the crowd to the Capitol. And at around 2 p.m., more than 800 protesters, rioters, uh, they breached the Capitol building, and they attacked officers, and they vandalized offices in, Senate, in the Senate chamber. And you kind of know the rest. I mean, that's like all we've been talking about since that day is that event. Uh, what you may not know, however, is that 15 days later, uh, there was a second riot. And it was right after Joe Biden was inaugurated. And I don't know if you guys remember, but there was uh, a lot of talk, and there were a lot of a lot of fears that, that we would have rioting on Inauguration Day, and sure enough, it happened. Um, there was a mob that attacked the Democratic Party headquarters, and police were attacked, uh, weapons were used. Rioters, they, they spray-painted F. Biden on buildings and walls and, and windows, uh, and they carried signs that said, we don't want Biden, we want revenge. And eventually, federal law enforcement, they were called in, and they had to use tear gas and other munitions to literally drive back the rioters. But here's the thing, you guys. What you may not know is that 
this second mob wasn't made up of MAGA Trumpers. They were Antifa rioters. And they carried Antifa flags, and they tagged the city with Antifa symbols all over the city. Uh, they, they claimed to be Antifa, and local officials identified them as Antifa. And what you also may not know is that the second riot wasn't in Washington, D.C. It was in Portland. And there was actually a sister riot that took place in Seattle at the very same time. You guys, when, when you take these two riots together, you're probably wondering where I'm going with this. Anybody freaked out yet? Anybody scared about where I'm heading with this? The reason I, I bring this up is that when you take these two riots together, what it does is it creates this perfect storm of finger pointing. The Antifa, the Antifa sympathizers, they justify the Portland riot by pointing back to the Capitol riot. And the Capitol rioters, they justify their riot by pointing back to the summer riots that happened all over the country. And this justification loop just goes on and on and on. And I'm telling you, we could walk it back decades if we wanted to. We could stand here and, and, and do all that. This is classic whataboutism. And I picked really big divisive issues because I want to create, I, I, I want to make a really big point uh, this morning. Whataboutism, it, it says, my riot is okay because the other riot is worse than mine. At least that's the claim. And I don't know if you know it, but uh, whataboutism is actual, it's a real word. I didn't make it up. Whataboutism, um, it actually was coined in, in 1978, but it's, it's a word, it's in the dictionary. Cambridge, Cambridge Dictionary, it defines it like this. It is the practice of answering a criticism by attacking someone with a similar criticism. And you guys probably know how the rebuttal goes, right? It goes like this, yeah, but what about, and then you fill in the awful thing that somebody else did. All I have to do is I have to find someone or something on your side that's worse than someone or something on my side. Or I need to find something worse in you than it is in me. And today, we're going to look at what I think is the worst version of whataboutism. And it's in Romans chapter two. And if you were listening to Campbell, you got a clue of what we're gonna, what we're gonna look at um, today. Um, so uh, if, you, if you have your Bibles, if you have your phones, if you have your cool little CSB scripture notebook, um, feel free, pull those out. Um, we're gonna read uh, Romans chapter two. I'm gonna read from the NIV, okay? But before we actually read this, um, I want to give you a little bit of context because context is critical when you're talking about a letter. And that's what we have here. It, it, Paul literally wrote a letter and he was writing to actual people, to these churches in Rome. Um, it's, it's important that um, uh, when, when you break down pieces of a letter that you understand what the whole letter is talking about. So as, as Campbell mentioned, Paul is writing to two ethnic groups in, in the church in Rome. He's writing to the Jews, that's the first ethnic group, and then the second ethnic group is everybody else. Everybody else gets clumped into that, into that second ethnic group. Um, so if you're not a Jew, you're a Gentile. And one way to think about these groups is religious and non-religious. The Jews were highly religious, very driven by their ritual. Um, and then the Gentiles were, were vo actually viewed as godless. 
um, but they're non-religious. So in the middle of chapter 1, um, this was a couple weeks ago. Andy was talking about this. In the middle of chapter 1, Paul, he drops like a, a, a spiritual bomb on, on both of these groups. It's like a nuclear bomb goes off, and the impact of this truth bomb, it just dismantles everything everyone knew about God himself. Because Paul tells the, the, the Christians in, in Rome that there's a righteousness revealed that we can only receive from God, and we get that righteousness only by trusting God. You guys, there's nothing like this truth in their world, nothing at all. And this is completely foreign idea in their culture as well. And I don't know, I don't know if you remember it, but Andy uh, pointed out uh, a couple weeks ago um, that, that if you look at all the world religions, uh, there's not a single one that offers salvation as a free gift. And so this is like Paul lighting this, uh, like, a, like a candle of hope in this pitch black evil world. And so Paul starts his letter um, with this earth-shaking reveal. But it's not the only reveal. Because in the very next verse, um, Paul reveals the wrath of God because of humanity's wickedness. He writes about God's wrath, like God's intense, angry, emotional response because humanity chooses to walk away from God. And so, again, if you're going to read this like a letter and you, and you take this in order, it's like Paul lights this, land, this candle of hope and then he goes and blows it out. Like that's literally the feel, like if, if, if there's an emotional feel to it. Then in the second half of the chapter, um, Paul writes about evil, indulgent, and self-obsessed people. Um, he writes about how we prefer created things and, instead of the creator. Um, and here's the reason why. Here's why he wrote the end of chapter 1 and then what we're going to look at today. Paul wants us to know why we can only receive righteousness. And we're right in the middle of that explanation. So um, just, a, just a heads up. Um, because we've been at this now for like just about a month, talking about the bad news. We're in the bad news portion of Paul's letter. Um, just a heads up, Paul is going to relight that candle. And when he does, I I'm telling you, it's going to be like stadium lighting. You know, he's going to light up the world uh, with, with a truth that's coming. But first, we have to see how dark the human heart is. We have to see how hopeless we are without this righteousness um, that Jesus offers. So that's when we come to chapter 2. And uh, so let's read it. Um, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read it slowly. We're going to take our time with this. Um, and we're going to spend a little extra time in, in verses 1 through 4. Um, so uh, let's, feel free to read along with me. It goes like this. You, therefore, have no excuse. It's a really important line right there, you guys. You, therefore, have no excuse. You who pass judgment on someone else, for at whatever point you judge the other, you are condemning yourself, because you who pass judgment do the same things. Now, you guys might not see it, but this is a stunning opening for these Jewish people. Paul has been talking about the evils of, of godless humanity, and, and it's kind of like he's taking this spotlight, and he shines it... So up to this point, it's like Paul has been taking this huge, shine, uh, this, this huge spotlight and he's been shining it on the really horrible people who reject God. 
And early on in this description of, of the really evil people in, in chapter 1, um, Paul says they are without excuse. He says that in, in chapter 1, verse 20. And, and here's what's going on here in chapter 2 as we, as we get started. While he's shining this spotlight, Paul is imagining something. I mean, he's thinking about this group of Jews and what they're doing. So he's exposing the evil of non-religious people, and, and it's like he imagines this self-righteous group that's gathering around him as he, as he makes this judgment and this condemnation. And this group of people is the Jews. It's the religious people. And Paul knows the Jews are cheering on his judgment and condemnation of, of the pagan world, of these, of these non-religious Gentiles. And then suddenly, they don't see it coming. They don't know it's happening. Suddenly, he spins this spotlight, and he exposes the judgers. He exposes the condemners that are all gathered around him, and he says, they have no excuse, therefore, you have no excuse. He says, you are them, they are you. You who pass judgment do the same things. And so in those few words, what Paul does is he links these two groups together, and, and that's like unbelievable for these Jews. I mean, they are God's people separated out from the nations. That's how they view themselves. And that's outrageously stunning to the Jews. The only thing I can think of um, that, uh, I mean, I, I could think more about it, but the thought that came to me is that this is like handing a MAGA hat to a Bernie bro and saying, you're just like those Trumpers. It'd be kind of like that, like that outrageous. Verse 2 says, now we know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based on truth. Paul right here is contrasting God's judgment with their judgment. God's judging with their judging. And he says, your judgment is based on hypocrisy. But God sees the truth. God calls it the way he sees it, and he sees it the way it is. Verse 3. So when you, a mere man, pass judgment on them, and yet do the same things, do you think you will escape God's judgment? Just because you shine the light on sins of others, do you think that exempts you from God's light that he shines? Exposing others doesn't distract God, and it doesn't get you out of your own expose. In fact, Paul says that the very light that you're using to shine on other people, that's the light that we're going to use on you. That's the light that exposes you. Verse 4, or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, tolerance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness leads you to repentance? I want, I want you to focus on that word contempt there for a second. Or do you show contempt? This right here is the great danger for religious people everywhere. That word contempt, huge word. Other translations, they, they use words like despise. Do you despise the riches of his kindness, tolerance, and patience? Other words are presume upon or think lightly of. It almost carries this idea of like apathetic disregard. Do you have apathetic disregard for these attributes of God? It's to think that something has no value, it, that, that, it, that it's literally worthless. The Greek word for contempt is kataphroneo. And it's actually two words put together, kata and phreneo. Kata is down. It's a preposition. It just means down or under. 
Phreneo, it, it means to understand or to think or to focus your thoughts on something. It is literally to think something down. It's to look down on something after you've seriously thought it through. And so in this case, as Paul is writing to these Jews, um, he, what, what he's saying is, you have two options. You can go with the judgy condemnation. You can pick that if you like that. Or you can go with God's kindness, tolerance, and patience. And Paul is saying that they, they, they take those two things, they put it in the scales, they weigh it, and then they pick judgy condemnation. And so in this verse right here, what Paul is doing, he, he's saying, is that really your choice? Like, are you really going for that? Is that what you picked? Is that your plan? Are the kindness, tolerance, and, and patience of God, are, are those things meaningless to you? Do you not see that they're the solution to your greatest need? Don't you understand that they yield something in your life? So these first four, four verses, we, we spent a little extra time here because this is, is basically the foundation of Paul's case against these religious people and all religious people. They summarize his charges. And what Paul does is he, he pulls the cover off of people who think that being good enough is real and that it's reliable. It's you know, thinking that, that, that you can be good enough and, and that's going to work for you, that you can actually depend upon that. And get this, he says, you think you're good to go, but you're actually less good to go than those who openly and blatantly reject God and his righteousness. At least those guys, the, the, the wicked Gentiles that he talks about in, in chapter 1, at least those guys are honest about what they live for. They know exactly what they stand for. They're, they're not hiding from anybody. But you, you disguise your rejection of God's righteousness with your self-righteousness. You've convinced yourself that rule-keeping works. And you guys, I, I can't say this for sure, but it's almost like Paul is saying the religious need the gospel more than the godless need the gospel. It's like they're more in jeopardy than those who know they're far from God. The religious don't have a righteousness that is good enough, but they seem to think that they do. And they seem to think they do because that's how they act. They act like they do. Okay, let's speed up a little bit. Let's go to verse 5. But because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, that's what drives this religious group. That's their motivation, their stubbornness and unrepentance. Because of those, you're storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath when his righteous judgment will be revealed. God will give to each person according to what he has done. To those who by persistence in doing good seek glory, honor, and immortality, he will give eternal life. Verse 8, but those who are self-seeking and who reject the truth and follow evil, there will be wrath and anger. There will be trouble and distress for every human being who does evil, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile, but glory, honor, and peace for everyone who does good, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile, for God does not show favoritism. You guys, I, um, here's how I want you to understand what I just read, those, those few verses there. Paul is saying, you get what you ask for. 
when you read this quickly, or if you forget context, if you, if you just rush right through this, it almost seems like Paul is, is contradicting received righteousness. It seems like Paul is saying that your righteousness, hence your reward, is linked to your ability to do good and not do evil. Did you see that in those verses? It's, it's literally like he's setting up a meritocracy. Like, do good, good things happen. Do bad, bad things happen. But what he's actually saying is, if you want life outside of the gospel, if you want to disregard the righteousness that Jesus offers, remember the word contempt? Okay, if that's what you want, you get it. I'm going to give you what you ask for. If you want good and bad, right and wrong, perfect and imperfect to be the standard of your salvation, that's how we're going to play this thing. Because, you guys, that's how it works. Paul finishes with, with something close to um, good luck. It's like, good luck. Hope that works out for you because God does not um, play favorites. So verse 12, all who sin apart from the law will also perish apart from the law. And all who sin under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not those who hear the law who are righteous in God's sight, but it's those who obey the law who will be declared righteous. He's saying the point isn't hearing. I don't care if you have the law. I don't care if God gave you the law on tablets of stone. Just hearing the law doesn't work. Obeying the law is what's required. Indeed, when Gentiles who do not have the law do by nature things required by the law, they're a law for themselves, even though they do not have the law, since they show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts. Their conscience is also bearing witness, and their thoughts now accusing, now even defending them. This will take place on the day when God will judge men's secrets through Jesus Christ, as my gospel declares. You guys, Paul is simply reinforcing his argument here. He's simply reinforcing the charges. He's saying no one escapes judgment and condemnation without the gospel, without the received righteousness that Jesus offers. Everyone has the law. Everyone knows the rules. The human heart is clear on rightness and wrongness. Our conscience tells us when we violate the law that has been written on our hearts. And one day, even our secret violations that no one knows about, they're going to be revealed. Now, in verses 17 through 27, we're not going to read those, okay? Um, verses 17 through 27, Paul, he, he really zooms in on the Jews. And, and he talks about these things, these six things that the Jews were relying on for their goodness with God. Um, but we're going to jump down to the last two verses. So, verse 28. It goes like this. A man is not a Jew if he is only one outwardly, nor is circumcision merely outward and physical. No, a man is a Jew if he is one inwardly, and circumcision is circumcision of the heart, by the spirit, not by the written code. Such a man's praise is not from many, or not from men, um, but from God. So, I mean, it kind of, honestly, it cracks me up a little bit to read that, because, like, I wonder when I read that, like, what do, what do, 
what does English culture, what does American culture do with verses like that? It, I, I want to say this is Paul's big point, and he clears everything up. So it's like totally clear to you now, right? It's like, nope. Like, if you, if you didn't know, again, any of the context or, or what he's talking about, it'd be really rough because Paul, he's using insider language here. He's using this language that's, that's common knowledge to the people who are receiving this letter. But to us, it's like very confusing. Paul actually sticks the landing right here. Let me tell you how, um, how he does that, okay? So here's what Paul is getting at. I'm, I'm trying to keep my notes from flying away here. Almost lost them. Hang on. Okay, you guys, here's, here's what Paul is doing. He's writing to Jews about who actually gets to be the people of God, about who actually belongs to God. So it's like Paul is saying, hey, Jews, hey, people of God, want to know who the real Jews, the real people of God are? So in gospel language, the way that we talk about this, like week in, week out, this, this common language for us is that Paul is talking about who gets to be adopted into God's family. It's, it's really, that's all, all it is. And, and we, we actually see this later. That's what Jesus does for us on the cross. Galatians says that when we trust Jesus for his righteousness, we go from slavery to family. We go from being outsiders to be daughters and sons of God. And guess who wrote that in Galatians? It was Paul. And that's what he's doing right here. That's what he's explaining. His answer is that your outward rituals and your behaviors, they don't make you an insider with God. I don't care what you do. I don't care how well you perform. Just, just because of what you do, it, it doesn't make God like you more. And he literally talks about circumcision. And this is where, like, we kind of go on tilt. Like, we don't, we don't get it. And we don't get it if we don't understand the history behind it. Circumcision, it marked the Jews as God's covenant people. It was, it was like the Jewish people signing a contract with God saying, we will belong to you and you belong to us. It's literally like, like signing on the dotted line, snip, snip, proved it. That's kind of what it is. And, and that's what it meant to them. And Paul says the actual mark of God's people is a changed heart, not a changed body part. It's a circumcised heart. So you guys, let me just, let me finish with two ideas, okay? Um, because we've been laying out like this contrast between these two people, and, and Paul the whole time has, has essentially been saying, you're the same. You're not different. Your hearts are the same, and, and, and that's what links you together. And so I want to finish this up um, talking about what religion does and what the gospel does. I want you to know that religion is all about your hands. It's all about what you do. The foundation of religion is earning your righteousness with God. It's up to you. It's on you. You carry this massive weight of creating your own righteousness. You, you think you have to fix yourself, and you don't. You can't. You think you have to throw in a few dollars against this massive spiritual debt, and, and your money's no good here. Your self-generated righteousness, it's like monopoly money. So religion, what it does is, is it, it, it turns us into hypocrites, really. 
I have a friend um, named Elizabeth, and if she was here this morning, uh, you'd know it because she stands out. Um, she has lots of piercings, lots of tattoos. I, I have nothing against piercings and tattoos. Uh, last time I saw her, she um, had shaved her head. Um, but the interesting thing is, and she always does very unique things, she grabbed a clump of her hair and then stand in, stood in front of a, a mirror and just shaved everything else. And so she's got this, like, cool clump of hair that just kind of does whatever it wants to do. Um, but my point is, she doesn't look like a little church girl. I met her years ago, and that's going to be relevant in a second. I, I met her years ago when she was having a ton of problems in her life. I mean, her life was just kind of a wreck. And so we met, and we talked, and together we kind of untangled some of her challenges. But while we did all of that, we also talked about Jesus, and we talked about the cross. And we talked about a righteousness that she couldn't generate on her own. And eventually she became a follower of Jesus. And I baptized her at the church where I worked at the time. And the thing is, she didn't really fit in in that great big patriotic church that I was working at. You can kind of begin to imagine the, the contrast. That, that church, the way I think of it, it was like they were, they were khakis and loafers. They were red meat and they were NRA. And Elizabeth, my friend Elizabeth, was like tie-dye, vegan, and Greenpeace. And so imagine, like, putting, putting those, those two things together. So one Saturday, she was in her car, and I, I need to describe her car a little bit, but she was in her car in the parking lot getting ready to leave our Saturday night service. She's literally waiting in line for the light to turn and, and turn left. Her car, uh, it looked like it was held together by bumper stickers. And, I mean, she must have had 40 bumper stickers on the back of her car. And if there was... Any issue that was left of center or, like, way left of center, she was all about it. And, and she had four bumper stickers for every one of her causes. So she stand, she's in line in her car, and, and, a, and a woman pulls up in her car behind Elizabeth. And Elizabeth told me she looked in a rearview mirror and, and saw the woman reading her bumper stickers. Oh, man. <laughs> And the woman's face uh, got dark, and she could, Elizabeth could tell she was, she was angry at what she was reading. And so the light turns green, and um, they make their left, and the woman sped up and caught Elizabeth at the next light. And she rolled down her window, and she screamed to my friend, I hope you never come back to our church again. So, like, who's the sinner in that story? Is it my head-shaved, tattooed, pierced friend who's just trying to follow Jesus? Or is it that loveless, judgmental, condemning woman in the other car? I don't know that woman. Jesus loves that woman. But hypocrisy says that if I'm going to look good, then some of you have to look bad. There has to be a contrast, and that must be, and I must be on the good side of that contrast. Hypocrisy happens when we look away from our own sin by throwing stones at someone else's sin. 
And I think that our hypocrisy, it comes from pride. Because that's what religion does also. It, it, it makes us proud. The number one thing driving the condemnation by, uh, of the Jews in, in this passage, by the Jews in this passage, is pride. It's pride in having the law. It's pride in being the chosen people of God. Some people say that pride is the original sin. Well, I don't know if you know it, but pride is actually the sin that turns Satan into the devil. And if you don't believe me, like, check out Isaiah 14 sometime. It's like it's his pride that drove him to try and usurp God. Some people say pride is the root of all sins, and, and that might be true. But the bottom line is pride is rooted in performance, and religion specializes in performance. Religion requires it. But the last thing that, um, that religion does is it makes us insecure. Man, it's, it's hard to be confident if you're living under religion. Um, we all have this thing called a conscience, and Paul calls it a witness. I don't know if you picked that up in, in Romans 2. He calls it a witness who points at the law that's written on our hearts. And so here's what happens. When you break the law, when you, when you sin, immediately your conscience begins to testify. It's like it doesn't need a judge. It doesn't need a jury. Like it's already in the witness box. And the very second that you sin, your conscience is flooding you with guilt and condemnation. I started, uh, I, I became a follower of Jesus when I was 12 years old. And um, I, I understood forgiveness. The little Baptist church that I became a Christian in, we, we were good on the forgiveness thing, but we had no idea what received righteousness was. Like it was a foreign concept completely. And so there were many, many nights as a 12-year-old boy, I would lay in my bed racked with guilt over all of my 12-year-old sins. And I would confess my sins exhaustively for hours asking for forgiveness. And I would pray to God, I would plead for him to show me my sins that I couldn't remember so that I could confess those too. I thought that my righteousness was up to my ability to remember and confess my sins. And I went on to believe a version of that for the next 20 years until I just gave up. I, I couldn't take it anymore. I just, I just settled into what felt like low-grade disappointment from God. Worrying about God's love is rooted in religion because religion says being right with God comes from your ability to satisfy God's justice. And you guys, I want you to know that the, the gospel says none of those things. The gospel refutes all of those things. So if religion is about your hands, the gospel is about your heart. It's about who you love. It's about who you're trusting. And the foundation of that is who God is and Jesus' sacrifice in our place on the cross. Now, I don't expect you to remember this, but last week, I, I, don't, th I don't know that Andy actually read the list. Go back some time in, in uh, the end of, of chapter 1 of Romans. There's a list of sins that, that Paul makes. It's actually one of his bigger lists. Paul is, for whatever reason, is really into these lists. It's a big list. And the bottom line is I can't imagine anybody, not just you guys, not just me, I can't imagine anybody 
not qualifying for that list. The gospel is seeing your sinfulness in light of God's kindness and his tolerance and his patience. So the gospel makes us humble. My favorite, there's a guy named, uh, actually, well, let me just say it. My, my favorite quote is from this guy named Jack Miller. He's no longer living. He was a pastor. He was a missionary. He founded World Harvest Mission. That's called Surge now. Um, and some of us have gone through this thing called Sonship. It's just an amazing, um, like, program. And his, this quote he says is, cheer up. You're worse than you think. And it's like, it's true. Cheer up, you guys. You're worse than you think. In fact, I'll say cheer up. You're horrible. And that's good news. It's this classic quote, we're all just beggars helping other beggars find the, find the food. And so here's the thing. Seeing the cross clearly and knowing we need righteousness from Jesus only happens when we truly see our sinfulness. Depravity is humbling. Our hearts are sin factories. And it's actually good news to recognize our need for Jesus. That's what the gospel does for us. It confirms to every single one of us here that we are, in fact, dirty, rotten, little, wicked sinners. We're worse than we will ever know. But get this, you guys. The gospel also makes us confident. Because in the gospel, what we do is we finally locate our confidence where it belongs. Our confidence isn't in our ability to save ourselves. We place our confidence in God's love and in the cross through trust in Jesus. You've been given a righteousness that's not your own. You don't deserve it. All you can do is receive it. So your own righteousness becomes irrelevant. You no longer need to lean on your own ability to be good. And then finally, you guys, the gospel makes us genuine. Because through the gospel, we're finally free to become our real selves. And so if you've ever struggled to be who you actually are, the gospel is the way you get that. Through the gospel, we're finally free to become ourselves. We no longer have to hide behind trying harder. The gospel creates a consummate, safe environment. Jesus says, I know you. I know all about you. I know who you are. I know what you've done. You know your details. I know your details too. And guess what? My love drives me to the cross to save you. And so you don't have to hide from a Savior like that, and you don't have to hide in a community that, that embraces and lives in the center of that gospel. Kierkegaard uh, famously said, this is my favorite, favorite uh, quote of his, he says, now with God's help, I shall become myself. And the gospel makes that possible because the gospel makes us, uh, makes us genuine. Uh, I'm going to call up the worship team. Um, and we're going to wrap up here. So Paul starts out saying, you therefore have no excuse. That's how it begins. And that's actually how I'm going to end. You have no excuse. None of you. Not a single one of you out here 
has any excuse, and, and I don't either. And the reason why is because you're just like the rest of us, because we too have no excuse. No one does. And so if you think you contribute to your own righteousness, or if you think you can be good enough to make God like you, I'm sorry, it just doesn't work that way. And you're just wrong. But this isn't Paul's entire message. I've been saying that for weeks now. He's building to the best news ever. So if we only had this chapter, uh, man, life would feel bleak. I mean, it would be rough. But if you remember, Paul lit that candle back in chapter 1. In Romans 1.17, he wrote, For in the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed that is by faith. Uh, There are a lot of people who say that, um, that that verse is actually called the verse that broke the world. Have you ever heard that? Romans 1.17, the, the, the verse that broke the world. It, it, it literally broke the world, the world that was the world 500 years ago. In 1519, Martin Luther, in horrible despair over his sinfulness, he writes about like suicidal despair over how awful he was. This is, a, this is a Catholic priest, a Catholic theologian. And he meditated on these verses for weeks and, and months. And he finally realized the righteousness that saves us can only be received from Jesus. It can never be earned. You guys, that truth finally touched his heart. And guess what he did next? He protested. He literally protested the religion of the day that he judgment and condemnation onto people. He became a protestant who ignited the Protestant movement. And that movement reignited the gospel and it it changed our world. I mean, this is a dude who knew all about the evils in the hearts of men and women. And he said, yeah, but what about the grace of God? He said, yeah, but what about the cross? And he said, yeah, what about the righteousness of Jesus? And come to find out, there is, oh man, a kind of whataboutism that transcends human depravity. And it provides us the righteousness of Jesus. You guys, the gospel is for um, truly awful people. I mean, the gospel is, is for the worst people who have ever lived. I mean, imagine the worst person you could think of. The gospel is for that person. But guess what? The gospel is also for really, really good people. It's for the best people who have ever lived. It's for the best person you could ever think of. The danger is thinking that you are too sinful to receive Jesus' righteousness or... The other danger is that you don't take your sin and the righteousness of Jesus seriously because you're a pretty good person. Jesus, we need to see you clearly. And we need to see your goodness. And we need to see your righteousness. And we need to know that it's exactly what we need that we can't do without it.
And we need to see that uh, who we are and what we can do is simply not enough. And that we can stop trying harder. And we can start depending on you. Jesus, that can impact the way we live every single day. And it can, it, it can kindle hope in us and joy in us and peace in us and contentment and gratitude. And those things shape our hearts. So I pray for my friends here. I pray that they would hear you, Holy Spirit, and that they would receive your word today. In your honor, Jesus, your glory.